This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home, leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. On this Sunday in October, we welcome you to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. The theme of the show is fusions. The fusion of two historic universities in Philadelphia, the fusion of disciplines within medicine, the fusion of proteins to create powerful new ones, including ones for cancer therapy, and finally the fusion of molecular components to create a promising new vaccine for COVID-19. We welcome two very impressive guests, both from Thomas Jefferson University. First is Dr. Mark Tikachinsky, professor and dean of the Sydney Kimmel Medical College, also the provost and executive vice president for academic affairs of Thomas Jefferson University. Then we'll hear from Dr. Matthias Schnell, professor and chair of microbiology and immunology and the director of the Jefferson Vaccine Center. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, we know Jefferson was founded in 1824, the seventh oldest med school in the country, and the first to promote supervised hands-on care of patients with its own teaching hospital. Textile University began in 1884, also recognized for giving students practical experience. Textile became Philadelphia University. Sidney Kimmel Medical College is part of Thomas Jefferson University. So, Mark, let's start with how Thomas Jefferson University and Philadelphia University merged and how this came about. Well, Marion, it's a, it's a bit of serendipity uh, mixed with openness to things really out of the box. Uh, it, it actually all evolved from a road trip. Uh, you know, uh, Steve Clasco, the president of Thomas Jefferson University, and I uh, did a road trip to East Falls. And it was around uh, this programming that we had been doing for a couple of years uh, around combining medicine with design uh, and also medicine with architecture. We call that our Medicine Plus programming, part of a co-curriculum at the medical college. Uh, we had started the first medical school 
uh, design program. Uh, we were also the first maker space in a medical school. Uh, and we had started a, a medicine plus design track for second year med students, uh, which was generating uh, a whole new series of startup concepts along the way. Uh, so we had uh, we had connected with Princeton University uh, to create an assured admission linkage where second-year Princeton undergrads would be able to, uh, you know, join the Medicine Plus design track even as undergraduates, and they'd be assured admission to the medical college later on. Uh, but we were looking for another university that uh, could partner with us in combining design with medicine and perhaps creating some graduate master's degrees around that. So medical students could also get a master's degree in design. Uh, and we didn't have to look really far because there was uh, Philadelphia University, uh, this story, 135-plus-year-old institution with nationally recognized programs uh, in design, in architecture, in textiles and fashion. Uh, and so one thing led to the other, and 39 months ago, back in July 2017, uh, these two storied Philadelphia universities partnered to become the new Thomas Jefferson University. And uh, we share much in common right from the outset. Uh, both of these universities have always focused on experiential learning. Uh, both have been committed for years in bridging disciplines. Uh, and uh, these are two universities that are very much uh, out, what we call outward-looking enterprises with a lot of community outreach and experiential work. Uh, so uh, that, that was really how it came about, and all kinds of um, even wild and crazy things have been emerging from that, uh, and we're really pushing the frontiers of where medicine meets human-centered design uh, you know, you can. Our, our motto uh, is now redesigning humanly possible. It's really uh, the you know exploring where uh, human design thinking can change uh, medicine and healthcare. So it's such a natural uh, combination of the two schools with the same philosophy, really, and with so many disciplines at Philadelphia University. Can you give us some examples of those collaborative programs? Sure. Well, uh, let's start with one that ties to the space station. So we, uh, we as part of our uh, Jeff Solves project, we had a grouping of medical students and design students uh, in a brainstorming session. And uh, we started with a challenge. We said, uh, come up with ways to stop torturing patients when they go into the hospital. Literally, that's that was the, that was the project. That was the challenge. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. And after about a two-hour brainstorming session, uh, they said, well, you know, one of the ways, you know, patients are tortured is they don't get to sleep. And why is it? Well, people, you know, people keep coming in to turning the lights on and off. And why do they turn it on? Well, they have to check, you know, the IVs and check the, uh, you know, fluid bags and everything that goes on in a hospital room. Uh, so out of that, the students came up with a uh, design project where, with lighting solutions, where they created these spot lighting solutions that were motion sensitive, so you wouldn't have to turn on the overhead light, uh, and the IV drip or the you know the the fluid collection bags would all be lit up uh, locally. Uh, one of the questions they had to tackle at first is what wavelength. I mean, how how do you actually light that up? And it turns out that 
one of the key people in designing the lighting for the International Space Station is Dr. Bud Brainerd in our neurology department, uh, who has huge experience in wavelengths of light that are compatible with different biological states, such as you know sleep. Uh, and that really informed uh, what wavelength those students chose. So uh, it was really bringing together uh, lighting expertise, the industrial design expertise, together with medicine. It's just an incredibly creative type way. And so it's a natural uh, fusion, as we keep using that word, that um, it's great to have people who are practical and people who are dreamers, and together the sky's the limit. Tell us about, if you would, um, the neurodiversity uh, focus that we've been talking about for the new ambulatory center. and mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there, it turns out that we have a lot of interest and expertise in autism at Jefferson and, and also around neurodiversity. Uh, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles actually have sponsored a lot of work at Jefferson in, in those specific areas, uh, you know, in a philanthropic kind of way. Uh, so um, we have that expertise in a number of different colleges, uh, in occupational therapy, uh, in the medical college, and also uh, in architecture. So the groups have come together now in a, in a sort of thinking collaborative, if you will, to say, how can we design spaces and how can we design textiles, materials, and devices mm-hmm. in those spaces that would be meet the needs of uh, individuals that are neurodiverse. Uh, And some unbelievably creative things are emerging out of that. And uh, as we now move forward with the new ambulatory center, uh, one of the key design components will be uh, meeting the needs of the neurodiverse and really drawing on uh, this this intersection, this fusion of architects meet medicine people, meet occupational therapists, and so on. And, and, and sure. it's just the, the creativity that's, that's bubbling up from it is really, really pretty amazing. It's exponential. I'm going to take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Mark Tikachinsky. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And we're back with Dr. Mark Tikachinsky from Thomas Jefferson University. Mark, you were saying about the new ambulatory center. Some months ago, we had Dr. Wendy Ross talk about uh, people on the spectrum. There is no quote-unquote ramp for neurodiversity. If somebody's in a wheelchair, there's a ramp to get into a building, but the genius behind what you're doing to help people on the spectrum is incredible. And then you mentioned the Sheba City of Health in Israel, that the students here at Philadelphia University designed a whole city, the healthcare at home after being out of the hospital, um, and they're working with um, the Sheba City in Israel. Incredible. Mark, I've heard you say, the wilder the idea, the better. Tell us how that feeds into all this. Yeah, sure, Marianne. Uh, I, I, let me let me give you two examples, maybe uh, you know, from completely different you know realms here. So, uh, we we were in the midst of COVID nineteen. We were uh, thinking about a challenge, which is here you have people coming into patients with uh, you know the viral infection, 
Uh, everybody's masked. Everybody's, you know, in these sort of almost scary kind of, you know, gowning and configurations. And it's a very isolating for patients. So we said, how can we start to make a difference around that? And so we created something called Jeff's Screen. How can we create a screen in the room, patient room, and cordon off essentially the the patient from the visitor with a uh, see-through uh, viral protective uh, screen? <laughs> and uh, we, we we brought to bear. Uh, the textile expertise that we have at the university, the, the designers, the interior design expertise, and bringing that together with the infectious disease experts. And some really uh, exciting ideas are coming out of that. And that, that's sort of really wild, if you will. Uh, sure. Here's an example of a student-led project, um, uh, which they came up with the name Flipcatch. And uh, this one shows that you can be really innovative in without having to create some multi-million dollar program, uh, but even sometimes simple solutions can be very compelling. Uh, so we had a bunch of students, and again, in a think tank, this is part again part of our Jeff Sauls program for the second year med students, uh, and it included a student from textiles and industrial design. Uh, and so the challenge there was, uh, how can we save some money in the hospital? And uh, one of the students uh, had real, you know, came up with this thought, well, you know, we do urine cultures to, you know, culture, see if, you know, there's a urinary tract infection and try to grow out uh, any bacteria that may be growing in it. Uh, And the big problem in urine cultures is, first of all, they're very strange and cumbersome. You know, they give you a little cup, they tell you to go in, and then they start telling you to urinate and then put the cup in so you get what's called a midstream. Well, that's pretty messy, and uh, there's a lot of contamination. So the just the repeat of urine cultures that's required, and also starting patients on antibiotics that then might have to be changed because you've been delayed in diagnosing is really pretty significant. So what the students came up with is a redesign of the urine analysis cup, <laughs> which is you know used I don't know how many hundreds of thousands around the world every year. Oh sure, and. Um, uh, and they came up with this incredibly creative solution where instead of one compartment, it's got two, and then it's got on a pivot, uh, on this axle pivot, uh, a plastic piece that's bent at 120 degrees and with a piece of textile that is fluid absorbent. And what happens is you just, uh, you know, there the patient just simply starts urinating and from the start. And once enough urine, you know, gets absorbed into that material, the weight makes the thing flip, and uh, the clean catch goes into the other compartment. Uh, just an example of, um, you know, solutions don't have to be complex and cost you a million dollars of design work. Uh, it's just framing the question uh, with human design thinking can really go a long way. And so we're really helping our students from both universities go into the real world, having practiced learning to share ideas, build on each other's concepts, and come up with something. This is the epitome of keeping it simple and saving millions of dollars on repeat urine cultures and antibiotics and sickness and all those good things. So, Mark, the other really neat thing that's happening with our medical students is the curriculum that they're so enriched by exposure to liberal arts. Tell us a little bit about that so we can move on about your uh, treatments. Sure. I uh, just, you know, we, uh, we've been talking about medicine plus design, medicine plus architecture, but 
We have an even longer standing program, which combines medicine with liberal, liberal arts, the humanities, mm-hmm. uh, with a whole range of incredible programming. Uh, uh, this was a lot of it was initiated early on by Dr. Sal Mangione, uh, more recently with, uh, with Megan Voller at Jefferson. Uh, includes students working with the Lantern Theater Company to write plays and then act in them uh, with uh, medical themes, uh, with, uh, you know, artistry working with the museums and uh, in terms of art observation and art production, just a, a whole range of things, which, again, is meant to cultivate these cross-cutting abilities, you know, design work is meant to cultivate human-centered design thinking. Our humanities program is to cultivate reflective thinking. Sure. And I love your Dean's concerts that we have, and you bring in string quartets or pianists, and music is therapy. We're going to be doing a show about that in a few weeks. Um, I love that. Now, you bet, you and we just chi- this year, yeah, we've just launched this Medicine Plus Music track. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. which is fantastic. Um, you were the chair of the Department of Pathology at Penn, and you played a big role in beginning CAR-T therapy. Can we explain that to the lay community in about two sentences? Because I want to spend time on uh, your company and your treatment for lung cancer. Sure. Well, of course, this is Dr. Carl June's work. And uh, during my tenure there, he came into our Department of Pathology and um, you know, develop that incredibly exciting uh, world-recognized technology. Uh, but in essence, that builds on this notion of fusion because you're uh, taking uh, two proteins, you make a fusion between them, but in this case, that fusion protein is expressed on an immune cell. So, uh, these cells called T cells in the body, and uh, if the fusion you choose right, the fusion protein is designed to specifically target the T cells uh, to cancer and uh you use the fusion to activate that that cell, you know, mm-hmm. the immune cell to attack the cancer cell. So it's uh, cancer specific and, and it doesn't uh, harm the normal cells around the cancer. I guess that's part of the beauty of it. And, and now you have your own company in Israel. You just got a patent. You've created a treatment. Tell us a little bit about that. That's miraculous, really. Yeah, sure. So the the, the company, you know, the, what we've been developing is this notion of fusion proteins. In this case, it's, it's fusion proteins that are injectable as as therapeutics. Uh, so the the lead product, which is actually going to be uh, going into clinical trials within the next two months or so, here at, at four major centers in the U.S., including Jefferson, uh, involves cancer immunotherapy. So in this case, um, you know the you know, it's targeting two aspects of the immune system. Uh, the body has something called the uh, natural or innate immune system, and then it also has the acquired immune system. So one end of this protein uh, essentially uh, uh, targets a molecule which uh, essentially is on the surface of cancer cells and normally is a bulletproof vest for the cancer cell, prevents them from being attacked uh, by other uh, by immune cells. And so one mm-hmm. end of the fusion protein binds to and blocks and neutralizes that bulletproof vest, so it makes it uh, susceptible to attack by the innate immune system. Uh, and the other end has something that just drives the activation of acquired immunity. So, uh, again, fusing two proteins with two functions towards a single pur- purpose, which is to uh, trigger the immune system to attack the cancer cells. And uh, a lot of the you know, preclinical data we have is really quite exciting in that area. 
So it's two proteins. One opens the one opens the door for the surprise attack, and then in comes the immune system to attack. <laughs> and when you explain it so beautifully to our listeners, they walk away saying, "I get it." And then we say, "Gosh, this took years," and um, you make it sound so easy. Um, next, in the next segment, Mark, we're going to be sp- speaking with our colleague, Dr. Matthias Schnell, about the vaccine that Jefferson has designed uh, to fight COVID. Uh, your thoughts on that? We have about a minute. Sure. Uh, well, uh, talking about fusion, that's, that's fusion, too. Uh, in that case, it's yes. fusing a piece of COVID-19, the virus, onto a proven viral vaccine. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it to Dr. Schnell to explain. Uh, <laughs> it's just it's, it, it's, you know, really pretty compelling in its simplicity and it's tried and true, uh, you know, and, and certainly another an alternative to what you hear a lot about out there in terms of the RNA, DNA, adenoviral vaccines. This one is built on something that is known to work. <laughs> so we're and actually safe. quite yeah. enthusiastic about it. Yeah. And it's and you'll, mm-hmm. as you'll hear from him, this is uh shown to be effective. The immunity that lasts for decades can be used in pregnant women and children. So Mm -hmm. uh, very, very promising. Of course, all still in the preclinical phase, uh, but it's been licensed to an Indian company for the developing world now. And as we speak, there are uh, into the millions of doses already being ramped up for this vaccine as as it heads into trials. Well, let's take a little break. I thank you, Mark. And we'll be back in just a moment with Dr. Schnell. We will revisit you as well, Mark. Thank you. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. We're back and so happy to welcome Dr. Matthias Chanel. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. I want to tell everybody that you're the professor and chair of the Department of Microbiology and Immunology and the director of the Jefferson Vaccine Center. You wear a lot of hats, Matthias, and you're so kind to share your wisdom and time with us today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) Let's start for the audience to explain basically what a vaccine is and what it does, how it works. Okay. So so a vaccine can be different things. It can be... um, uh, virus which were killed or bacteria which were killed or it can be a DNA which encodes um, a certain portion of a virus or bacteria. But in, in general, the way it works is that we give you something to expose you um, to a pathogen without, which means a virus or bacteria, and it doesn't make you sick. So it's kind of draining of your immune system um, to prepare you to what you could be exposed later on. That makes perfect sense. So tell us, if you would, about your vaccine for COVID. It, it's miraculous. So, so the approach we take, you know, you, the listener probably heard from, from different sources, different vaccine. What, what we do, we, we use an established vaccine, which is, in our case, the rabies vaccine. The rabies vaccine is a vaccine which is used since... 40 years in in a lot of people and we actually put part of this um, SARS coronavirus protein, the spike protein, on that rabies virus. So we kind of use it to to rabies virus and piggyback it on the rabies virus. And then we use this vaccine to vaccinate 
and get immune responses against um, the SARS coronavirus and rabies virus. It's so clever and it seems so simple, but thanks to you, it all came together. So for our listeners, you take a deactivated or a dead rabies virus as, our, as the vehicle, we could say, and then we take a spike. Everybody has seen in the news and on the internet, the picture of the virus has all those spikes. And the spike is what our immune system recognizes and tries to attack. So if we take just a portion of the SARS-2 or the COVID virus, we take a, the spike from that, piggyback it onto the rabies um, dead virus and use that as a vaccine. It's, it's beautiful because then we'll be immune to rabies. Not that that's so common, but it's common enough. So we'll be immune to rabies and COVID. And your work has shown that it's more effective it's safer, so fewer side effects, and it works more quickly. And even in pregnant women, children, tell us about that. Yeah, so, so the advantage of using uh, established vaccine is actually that you had a lot of safety data. And because rabies is such a bad disease, which almost kills everybody when you have symptoms, um, it, it was studied, the vaccine, in, in children, pregnant women, and has proven to be safe. So we thought that would be a perfect established platform to use for new diseases, and um, that would be used for COVID-19. We used it before for things like Ebola and Lassa virus, too. Right. And, and I know, aside from the Ebola vaccine that you created and Lassa, that you also sort of fashioned one for the original SARS virus, too, right? Yes, we also did one for the so-called SARS coronavirus, which doesn't have the two, which which emerged about 20 years ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we, we used that platform for a really, really long time, and that enabled us to jump really fast on, on that vaccine train, and um, we, we established this new rabies-based um, COVID-19 vaccine. Well, we, we are so fortunate to know you and that that you did your homework as a little boy and went all through school to learn how to be so smart because it was you, you're too humble to share this with the audience, but it was Dr. Matthias Schnell who came up with the original um, idea to combine rabies with other uh, protein particles to make these other vaccines. So you've had the most experience really in the country with this. Yeah, that's true. We That work was done during my thesis very, about 25 years ago to... Um, Establish this vaccine platform. And the advantage is really if you work on something a long time, you just know a lot more than perhaps for right. other approaches currently used. Mm-hmm. So, and we know once a vaccine is developed, millions of people will need it. And as you say, it's already proven safe in pregnant women and children. Um, and um, there are already so many centers around the world that make the rabies vaccine that we'll be able to um, ramp up the production once you have the safety measures checked and all those good things. And the other cool thing that you told me was that other vaccines need to be kept frozen, maybe minus 80 degrees Celsius. I can't imagine how cold that is, but this is stable at room temp. So it's dehydrated. We just add water and we're ready to go. Yeah, I mean, this is actually... A lot of this new vaccine required storage at minus 80, which is not your regular freezer. That's um, a special mm. freezer or dry ice, and that's a, certainly a big logistic problem. I mean, it's already a problem in, in the U.S. and Europe, but think about the six billion of people living in the developing world where you really don't sure. have the infrastructure right. to right. provide such vaccines. Yeah. And, 
And I guess the other thing on people's minds is the convalescent plasma. Plasma, that part of the blood that has the antibodies or the soldiers that go after a virus like this. Um, it's been a little disappointing, hasn't it, when we collect uh, the plasma from people who have already had COVID? Yeah, so, so this is questionable if that works. There's some evidence that it actually works. There's some evidence it doesn't. The problem is actually that SARS coronavirus is not very... Um, potent to induce antibodies. So you have already really not that high antibodies in the first place. So that's a problem. So with, with, with rabies, we know that our platform, at least in animal system, it uses way higher antibody titers than a natural infection. So and, and the current system for, for rabies virus treatment is actually serum, using serum from rabies vaccinated people. So we hope that we uh, when we vaccinate people with our coronavirus vaccine, that we could use that serum also for treatment. So if I understand it, if you're naturally infected with COVID, you're not even likely to have a lifelong immunity, but the rabies vaccine is much more likely to give a person lifelong immunity. That's incredible. And how about um, the other uh, difficult puzzle piece here is the serologic test, the blood test. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean... We, we um, humans get infected by four different coronaviruses, common cold viruses. So there's some cross, what we call cross reactivity. So it's it's really hard to tell was that's a new SARS coronavirus causing COVID-19 or was it of the one of the natural infecting cold virus which infect us all the time. So to discriminate is is not that easy. Right. So if somebody has an antibody test and have corona antibodies and they're all excited that they're immune, maybe it's from some other common cold and can be confusing. So now it's flu season and we encourage people, please get your flu vaccine before the end of October. But tell us a little bit about that. That's not quite as uh, predictable. No, so so with influenza virus, I mean, we, we definitely need everybody to get the influenza virus vaccine um, because it's also a serious disease and we shouldn't forget that influenza kills 30,000 people every year in the U.S. and we don't want now having it um, dead on top of COVID. Um, therefore, we ask people to, to get this vaccine and it's really important to do so to at least, you know, take a vaccine we already have. Well, and you know, I do a, a report um, every night on, or every Sunday night on Women to Watch, another show, and I'll be talking about the flu vaccine tonight. And I was reading that fewer than half of the American population got the flu vaccine last year. It, like you say, uh, well over 400,000 people are hospitalized, somewhere between 30 and 60,000 die. Get the flu vaccine, please. Um, my last quick question, Matthias, is herd immunity. If we could explain that to people. Yeah, herd immunity basically means you have enough immunity in the population so you protect it. But this is a, a high hurdle for, um, for the SARS coronavirus because we know that one person normally infects three other ones. So basically to keep the infection from stopping, you need 75% being protected, having this herd immunity. If we go... By these numbers, we probably would lose, you know, something in the range of 10 million people in the U.S. alone. So this is really not a solution, herd immunity. No, and I know either herd immunity comes from everybody being vaccinated or everybody getting sick. And the numbers that I heard in New York at its peak, with all the people, the, the hospitals bursting at the seams, that was only 20 percent of the population. Imagine if it were 30, 40 or 50. 
Well, thank you so much for that beautiful explanation. It's so much clearer. And Jefferson is so proud and so fortunate to have you at the helm. And uh, hopefully we'll get good news in the next several months. I would think it would take another several months before we see yeah. any uh, practical use. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Matthias. Okay, and, um, thank you so much. And we'll everybody to... is careful, wash their hands and wear some masks. Exactly. Do what you can. Thank you so much and keep up your great work. We appreciate your okay. precious time. Okay. You're welcome. Bye now. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And we're in our final segment with Dr. Mark Tikachinsky, Dean and Provost at Thomas Jefferson University. Mark, what does the future hold for Thomas Jefferson University? A lot of excitement and beautiful work. Yeah, so we're positioned as a university focused on the professions. Uh, we were uh, a health sciences university until three years ago, and uh, now we focus on a broader range of professions, uh, bringing us into, as we've been discussing, uh, design and architecture, uh, textiles, fashion, and so on. Uh, and the key for us is, the as the 21st century unfolds, uh, professions were, are going to look radically different. You know, by the time the students that we're training right now are out practicing their professional fields uh, in 2050, 2060, in the hearts of their careers, uh, they're going to look dramatically different. And so we have to have a point of view, uh, imaging, imagining what those professions will look like and teaching towards those professions. So uh, that's essentially what, what we're, what we're doing. Uh, and, um, uh, fusion, which is what we've been discussing, is one general aspect of driving creativity. And so a lot of what we're doing in our various uh, colleges at the university uh, is how do we nurture creative thinking? Uh, creativity is not something you're just sort of innately wired with. Uh, you can cultivate creativity. And uh, that's what we aspire for, uh, is to be a home of creatives of the 21st century, uh, focused on where the professions will be heading. And I think, too, you, mar you say it so well, we're, we're almost saying that we're combining all of the arts and sciences to work together because the future holds problems we can't even imagine. Who would think that something like this pandemic would just crawl into every crack in the surface? problems we could never have dreamed of resulting from this. But thanks to people like you uh, who know how to dream and teach the left side of the brain to write with the right, work with the right side of the brain. We're asking artists and scientists and stem cell people and humanities to all come together. And uh, it's the beauty of this merger. And Thomas Jefferson University is a fantastic place to be and learn and really um, donate beautiful ideas to society. So hoping that we'll be saving millions of people with the new COVID vaccine from Jefferson. Uh, we, we, we're, we're, we're looking forward to a future that's unfolding and uh, we will get past this pandemic. And um, uh, there's just a, a lot of exciting things that will then unfold. I'd be stronger for it. Thank you so much with your special interest and the time you shared with us, because I know time is the most precious commodity. Thank you, Dr. Thanks. Mark Tikachinsky. Yeah, and thank you, Marianne, for this opportunity. This is terrific. Yes. Now, your real champions. You know you've got the heart.
And now, it's time for your real champion, Sid Mark from The Sounds of Sinatra. Very few treasures in life earn the label of timeless. The comfort of a mother's embrace, the taste of a home-cooked meal, the joy of a birthday card from an old friend. But the one we celebrate today is the work of Sid Mark, host of The Sounds of Sinatra. For over 64 years, the smooth, calming voice of this legendary radio host has brought joy and comfort to five generations of listeners. 40 of those years have been shared with other stations across the country, but we like to claim him as our own Philadelphia royalty. What makes Frank Sinatra's appeal so enduring? More than the voice that led women to swoon, every song shares a message. He wants what you want. He feels what you feel. He struggles in New York. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. And how many birthday and retirement parties play my way? He longs for love in his ballads when he croons, I will love being loved by you. And he feels your heart breaks when he sings about his own. You're nobody till somebody loves you. Francis Albert was confident. He was cool. And when he sang to an audience of 20,000, he was singing directly to you. He was the chairman of the board. Sid was drawn to the glamour of radio and Frank Sinatra. Sid says, I wanted to be him and all the girls wanted to date him. Sinatra is the convertible, the cars, the golf clubs. Sinatra is a lifestyle. Sid Mark has preserved the message of the music and cultivated an ongoing fan base. Old Blue Eyes warmed the hearts of lovers separated by war and lifted spirits with songs like High Hopes, the theme song of JFK's election campaign. And he shows his love for America, the house I live in. What drew Sid to his vocation as the Sinatra ambassador? Well, as a young man, he didn't join the family clothing business or become a doctor like his brother. He enlisted to serve in the Korean War right out of high school. He wanted to join the Armed Forces Radio, but his big break came a few years later when his sister's jazz teacher gave him a start at a local station. Sid Mark is a champion on many levels. When he was in the service, he let his fellow soldiers go home for the holiday, and he stayed in the 40-bed barrack alone. On that first lonely night, he heard, I'll be home for Christmas, and he knew he had never heard anything like that before. By the mid-1950s, Sid had an all-night broadcast on WHAT in Philly and played an entire new Sinatra album instead of rock and roll. The next day, album sales skyrocketed, and Sid was invited to Las Vegas for a weekend with Frank. Their friendship blossomed, and Sid proudly shared the Sinatra quote, It's wonderful to have a friend like Sidney. I've only had four or five in my career, people who've stayed when things are dark and don't change when everything else changes. Sid felt the same way about Frank the most charitable man who would do anything for a friend. Sid is the leading authority and the only person authorized by Frank Sinatra to host a syndicated show. In fact, Sid is the host of the longest running single artist syndicated radio program in America. Sid doesn't just play the music, he tells the stories behind each song as a fan and a friend. In fact, he's never taken a vacation because, quote, I don't want anybody else dating my girl. There will never be another Frank Sinatra. There will never be another Sid Mark. Scientific evidence shows that music is therapy. I guess that means that Dr. Sidney Mark makes house calls every Sunday morning. I know when I hear his reassuring voice, it lifts my mood and I know everything's going to be all right. It stirs images of my adorable parents humming his music and sneaking a few dance steps in the living room. Sid receives hundreds of emails each week. You helped me heal after surgery or my stroke. You brought back memories of Sunday mornings when mama was making gravy. In fact, Mayor Frank Rizzo used to report that the power dipped across Philadelphia on Sunday mornings as fans tuned in to Sid Mark. So start spreading the news. Even millennials love Sinatra, and I don't know what the next generation will be labeled, but I can tell you this. 
When I have dance parties with my 18-month-old grandson, Baby Tommy, he loves to sing Doobie Doobie Doo. We salute you, Sid Mark. You're a real champion. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor. You can hear all of our shows on yourradiodoctor.com. And over the next two weeks, you'll hear about prevention and treatment of breast cancer, x-ray, surgery, treatment, and genetic testing. The last Sunday in October, music and medicine, ways in which music helps with healing. Hear from Sid Mark and Jerry Blavitt, two people whose music has lifted spirits for more than half a century. And always remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.